Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Ambassador Molly Fee, the United States Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs and the top U.S. diplomat to Africa. Ambassador Fee and I discussed the Biden administration's strategy towards Africa and its diplomacy in the Horn amid a changing world. Just a note that we recorded this conversation last week before Sudan's military leaders signed a new political framework with the country's main civilian leaders on Monday, which you'll hear us preview. Welcome to the podcast. It's a it's a very huge honor to have you on. Oh, it's great to be here. I really highly value ICG's work and your specific focus on the horn. So in August in South Africa, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken um, unveiled the new U.S. strategy for Africa. And this month, the U.S. is hosting another summit with African leaders. Before we talk about how the U.S. plans to achieve its objectives on the continent, first, what does the U.S. want in Africa from Africa? Why does Africa matter to the U.S.? I think it's really important to understand the deep conviction that President Biden and Secretary Blinken hold, given their decades of experience in foreign policy, that our world is interconnected and that the United States acting alone is unlikely to be successful in addressing the challenges that define our era. President Biden has tasked Secretary Blinken with reviving our diplomatic partnerships across the globe and in recognition of all the factors you know so well, Alan, about uh, the demographics, economic resources, climate resources, if you will, the human resources of Africa, that we can't succeed in the United States. And Africa, frankly, themselves, Africans themselves, can't succeed if we don't all work in partnership uh, to look at what we're going to do together to address climate change, to address, for example, the recent challenges of food security, to address the ongoing challenge of terrorism, and to basically unite in defense of democratic systems, which we have found to be the best uh, mode of government for unleashing the potential uh, of humans and contributing to prosperity and stability. So in sum, we believe that everything we want to achieve it can be more successfully achieved and advanced in partnership with Africans. Mm. And how is this administration's approach to Africa distinct from previous administrations, not just the uh, the Trump administration, but the Obama and Bush uh, administrations also? I know a criticism of the Trump administration's strategy to Africa is that was it was a lot about great power competition, which this which this new strategy from the Biden administration, it, it clearly pivots away from that. But how does it move on from sort of prior strategies as well? First of all, it's fair to say it's it's an evolution particularly from the President Obama era, as well as President Clinton uh, to President Biden, it really amplifies our conviction that Africans need to be at the table in international discussions. It really recognizes African agency and the significance of African contributions to coping with challenges that face all of us. And it recognizes that, you know, a lot of the challenges we encounter don't respect borders. Mm. A, a slightly different question, although along the same lines, how is your job different than it was under predecessors such as, you know, Jendai Fraser, Johnny Carson, Linda Thomas, Greenfield? The world is obviously not the same as when they held this role. And I'm just wondering, how is the nature of, of this job as America's top diplomat to Africa? How, is, how has that changed also? I think one of the changes that I encounter at this point in time 
is a topic that you've looked at before, Alan, which is the rising influence and engagement of regional powers in Africa. Sort of sometimes in the media, people tend to look at the great power competition as a football match, but it, it that um, elides the importance of the Gulf, Turkey, uh, and other regional players um, and their engagement uh, in Africa. And so to me, uh, particularly in the Horn, that's a dynamic that's more pronounced than it might have been for my predecessors. And I, I want to zero in on some of that uh, soon, both on, on regional politics, but generally with Gulf countries and, and Turkey. Um, before we do, I'm just wondering, uh, how, how should we think about sort of U.S. competition with China and Russia um, in the context of Africa under the current administration's approach? Just especially with China, is there room for cooperation? And, and what specifically would that look like? Well, before I address the issue of China, I really want to underscore that my approach and the approach of the secretary and the president is to engage Africa for the sake of African interests and American interests and what we can achieve together globally. China does not dictate American engagement in Africa. If China were not present, we would still be engaged in Africa. So I I really want to highlight that issue because I just feel that there's, again, this tendency to subordinate every American action to America's complicated relationship with China. And and that's a mistake. But with regard uh, to the issue of when we encounter each other on the continent, uh, the secretary has used the formulation of cooperate in areas uh, where that's possible and useful to everybody involved. I think the environment is a is a good area to consider. Uh, we also recognize that some or much of uh, Chinese investment in infrastructure has been good for Africa, particularly with roads. Secondly, there'll be areas where we'll compete. We have very different models. You know, they have a state-directed uh, investment model. We have a vibrant private sector. We think the, uh, an independent private sector is the most effective at unleashing um, talent and prosperity. So that's our model. We also invest in systems, in people, in processes, in institutions. That's sometimes less visible than uh, a shiny object you might build. Uh, and in areas where it's necessary, we'll, 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 we're prepared to contest Chinese engagement, particularly when it's disadvantageous, not only to American interests, but to African interests. I think particularly of labor standards in the mining industry, pollution, etc. So that's sort of the way we look at it. In September, President Biden endorsed a permanent African seat at the UN Security Council. I'm just wondering, do you have any idea exactly how that would work, who would take that seat? And more generally, um, how do we update the sort of global architecture to give Africa a larger role? You know, not just as participants or guests in some of these forums, but as, you know, permanent core members uh, moving forward. Well, you've said it exactly the way we look at it. Um, and that's what I tried to d- describe a bit earlier. We believe that Africa should be at the table and have a voice commensurate with its power and stature and capability. With regard to the UN, um, that would be worked out. But in general, for example, the geographic groupings present in New York, they have a system for choosing the representative. So the Europeans have a model, for example, uh, those from Latin America have a model, those from East Asia have a model. So I, I would presume that the Africans would, would follow that model as they do now with the uh, three seats that they hold on the Security Council. So th- that would be something that they would need to work out among, among themselves. 
But it's not just the Security Council. You know, the UN system is vast. There are already quite a number of African leaders of different African tech or different um, UN technical agencies and departments, and that's really terrific. We're also looking at the international financial institutions and uh, the G20. So there's a lot of this. This is part of an overall Biden administration effort to update the international architecture to meet the challenges of our time and to make sure it's not suborned by any one party for their interests. And could that look like the African Union potentially taking a seat on the G20 like the European Union already does? Right, exactly. That's one of the uh, ideas under active discussion. So another question more more generally, I'm wondering how the U.S. can compete for long-term influence on the continent when, when other governments, and there's a lot more external partners, you know, for Africa than I think there used to be, those governments can offer, you know, direct investment, often coming directed by the governments themselves. And the U.S. government, you know, at least the government itself, not the private sector, what it can offer is is aid. And sometimes that aid is conditioned itself on human rights or democracy, um, which which sometimes can be a high bar. So I'm just wondering, is this is this a strategy that can succeed moving forward for the U.S. to continue to sort of maintain its influence? Well, again, we're not interested in influence for influence's sake. We're interested in influence for outcomes. And what are the kind of outcomes that the United States seeks? We seek peace. That's why we've been heavily involved, for example, in trying to resolve Uh, the internal conflict in Ethiopia. Uh, That's why we've been a significant contributor to the engagement of outsiders in Somalia to help uh, manage the threat of al-Shabaab. That's why we've been intensively engaged in Sudan to help the Sudanese people reach a restoration of a civilian-led transitional government. So that's an outcome where our influence matters. We have enormous economic influence. We have a big voice in the World Bank and the IMF and other global multilateral institutions that can leverage and bring to bear development dollars and assistance. We are by far the largest donor in terms of humanitarian assistance. We have, I think, an enviable model culturally and socially. Our historic um, establishment and embrace and advancement of rule of law is appealing to many across the world. Our democratic tradition is appealing to many across the world. So I'm pretty confident that uh, the United States continues to bring strengths to bear um, that advances outcomes that most Africans want to see. Mm. Um, and one more question on the U.S.-Africa strategy more, more broadly. It, there's a pillar on open society, on uh, democracy, on COVID, climate adaptation, but, but not really one specifically on conflict resolution or, I'd say, inclusive political settlements, which, which I'd say those are more often the, the challenges we deal with in the region specifically and the focus of a lot of U.S. diplomacy uh, specifically. I'm just wondering, what, why is that? Well, Alan, I think if you look at the strategy, we um, tried to explicitly link democracy and security, because if you don't have inclusive systems, you have insecurity. That's the core of insecurity uh, we have found. If any one group is excluded from participatory governance, that drives them uh, to resist a dominant political system. So I do think that's addressed because it's, you know, insecurity, in our view, is the flip side of poor governance. And I think that also ties into the overall American reflection since 9-11 about sort of what has worked and, and what hasn't worked. And when we look at the challenge posed by terrorists to exploit fissures in societies, 
uh, to sort of embed themselves and feed on uh, tensions and lack of development. We have found that we were we were pretty successful in the security sector, but we perhaps overemphasized that type of engagement and are trying to retool in many ways to focus more on uh, what we can do in governance and development. And those are difficult um, endeavors, right? They take longer. They involve change in human behavior. Uh, so it's it's harder to do. But we found if if, if those areas are neglected, you're never going to get security. I'm going to turn not quite to the horn, but but connected to the horn and go back to your point on Gulf powers, Turkey, um, more generally Middle East powers. A lot of time diplomatically now seems spent um, regarding, you know, the Horn of Africa specifically with sort of Western capitals and, and Washington in particular engaging these other Middle East powers. We'll talk more about Sudan coming up, but I, I mean, when I think back to the CPA period, uh, for instance, you know, you don't recall Riyadh being a particularly um, important actor back then, you know. So I think it sort of shows uh, just how much, how much times have changed. H- how do you balance pursuing U.S. interests, um, you know, nowadays with the fact that you have all these other important actors who also have their own interests and own visions, and of course, sometimes on the Venn diagram, there's, there, there's parts of those visions that overlap, but but sometimes not much. Well, actually, I view this as, if you will, Africa catching up with the interdependency of the rest of the world. So if you operate in other parts of the world, you will encounter powers near and far, and it's part of the mix of what you do. So it's natural to me, again, given the opportunity, the markets, the people, the resources, what we see in Africa, others see in Africa. So I think it's good for Africans that they're becoming more intertwined in the global system uh, and have more opportunities across all sectors. So I don't view it as a negative. And in fact, in many cases where we can align, particularly with non-traditional partners, we have a, a bigger impact. So for example, if in certain cases, when I was in South Sudan, if the Chinese ambassador and I went in to see the, the government, we, would, we were very likely to have an impact. That's not a very typical case lately, but you know we have found in many cases um, that when we've been able to align with Gulf Arab states or with the Turks uh, in Somalia, again, it, it advances everybody's uh, outcomes. Do you think too much is made then of this discussion about the role of sort of competing external actors in the horn and, and, and the role that's playing in, in kind of increasing destabilization in at least certain countries? Actually, it's it's absolutely true that certain actors can be destabilizing. In Ethiopia, we were very concerned, for example, about arms sales that we believed uh, fueled the conflict. And we attempted to press parties who were engaged in arms sales uh, to cease that kind of engagement uh, because we thought it was harmful to peace and security and stability in Ethiopia. But again, I uh, I really believe that we... Uh, achieve better outcomes when we're focused on uh, a tangible goal uh, that benefits uh, both Africans and the United States. So I see that as the primary effort and engagement with other other parties is is part of global diplomacy, part of global engagement. And just one more question along these lines, um, just to, just to share with you a perception or a um, 
a comment that we often hear in the region, which is there's a sort of what I'd call maybe a budding resentment expressed at times from regional officials that it seems like diplomats dealing with the horn sometimes can seem to spend as much time across the Red Sea as as in the Horn of Africa, whether or not that's fair is another question, but I think that perceptions, is there a way of moving this this sort of engagement forward in a way that doesn't make people on the continent feel like they're basically outside many of these conversations? I, I'm really glad you raised that because again, that's really going back to what's the strategy of the Biden administration, what's Secretary Blinken's approach to Africa is, is he has said, he said this in his speech, right? that and when we were in Pretoria uh, about the strategy, that for too long Africa had been the subject, if you will, of external powers, or perhaps an object of external powers. Uh, we don't believe that's appropriate anymore, and that's certainly not our intent. I think it's a function, in a sense, of the weakness uh, at the current moment of some governments in the horn, uh, that external parties try and coordinate to support those governments in resolving those weaknesses and moving forward. So I can see the I can see the validity of that perception, but the goal for the United States is that those governments are in a position to deliver for those people uh, so that they don't need to depend so much on external support. But external support is going to be, or external engagement is, is just a fact of life for all of us. It's a fact of life in the United States. It's going to be a fact of life in Africa. I mean, let's take, for example, right now, the drought in the Horn, right? The countries in the Horn cannot individually manage this sort of historic crisis. They do need external assistance. And I might take this opportunity to encourage our partners in the region and in the international community uh, to join the United States in increasing uh, assistance to help countries and communities and peoples uh, so devastated uh, by this drought, which is symptomatic, of course, of the impact of climate change. So we're, we're all, we're, I think, you know, we're all in the boat together, Alan, and, and there's no getting around it. Zeroing in more on the region specifically now, and, and and thanks for all the conversation leading us up to here. So both Sudan and Ethiopia, I'd say at a point in 2019, sort of embodied, you know, real hope for political change. Um, and I think that's even putting it mildly. You know, obviously, a few years later, things look much different. Uh, before we talk about Ethiopia or Sudan and, and the processes inside each of those countries, do you, do you have any reflections on maybe what has gone wrong with these political transitions and maybe what's what, what's missing in these political transitions right now in the region that it seems like they are just derailing? Well, first of all, I do want to recognize and in fact admire uh, the euphoria that everybody experienced in 2019, right? We, we, we saw both countries move in a direction that reflected, I think, the longing and the aspiration uh, of the peoples uh, for many, many years. Uh, and that was inspiring to everybody. But perhaps it wasn't so realistic. If you do any sort of study of transitional governments, most of them are weak and fragile, and most of them uh, have reversals. So if you think of it as a spectrum, it might be more realistic to expect that people and governments and societies will stumble as they move forward. It's very hard to break, like let's say Sudan, for example, they had more than 60 years of an authoritarian military government. Um, and that the patterns, whether economic or political or so societal, that were established are hard to break and hard to overcome. 
Ethiopia, as you know, has had a very troubled history in the 20th century uh, with the Derg, um, and then, of course, uh, with that long struggle, and then a TPLF-dominated government that, that excluded other communities. So these governments, these societies, these individual leaders have a lot of heavy history to overcome. And maybe we were not as realistic as we should be about the challenges uh, that they faced in building and designing new systems. You know, again, it's a human endeavor. It's complicated and it's tough. It's even tough in, in the United States where we have a, you know, a long tradition of democracy. Mm. On Ethiopia specifically, um, I want to turn obviously to the peace deal. The U.S. has played a strong role in the peace process, um, often behind the scenes, convening the parties, for instance, over the summer and playing an observer role at the African Union peace talks that, that, that did broker this deal in Pretoria. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what was the critical factor that finally produced this peace deal after all these efforts? And, and obviously, how do we now keep it on track? The critical factor is, I think, threefold. So like many things in life, right, um, there isn't usually a single uh, explanation. First of all, the parties themselves took the decision to move away from a, a military effort to resolve their differences and to agree to engage in a serious political process. Uh, so we wouldn't be anywhere um, without the political will of the parties, and that should be commended. Second, I believe the role not only of the AU, but of the Kenyans and the South Africans, uh, leaders on the continent, uh, both with a vested interest in a, in a stable Ethiopia, to make clear uh, that, they, that the parties needed uh, to move in this direction. So their political engagement was critical in helping the parties find a way forward. I do think our role with both sides uh, to let them know we were serious uh, about not restoring the strategic partnership that Ethiopia has enjoyed with the United States without a commitment and action by the parties to resolve this uh, uh, these political tensions through a political process rather than through military means. I hope that that was helpful. And we were not alone in that. We were united with most of Ethiopia's partners. And again, that goes back to sort of the, the overall di uh, diplomatic engagement. So that alignment we were able uh, to achieve, I think, uh, provided a clear choice to the parties about which direction to go in. Uh, and a fourth sort of um, hard to document element, I think, is that the Ethiopians were probably tired of this terrible conflict. You know, civil wars are the worst type of conflict. I saw that uh, President Obasanjo estimated that up to a million Ethiopians have died in this conflict. So the opportunity cost, both in human lives and economic devastation, the rebuilding challenge Ethiopia now faces, I think the cost became uh, too much for people to bear. And and how do we now keep it on track? Obviously, there's still a lot of challenges, and, and we've written and, and talked about this a lot of crisis group, that it's obviously a very huge step, but just just an initial step towards peace from these parties. So how do we, how do we keep it from relapsing? Well, it's up to the Ethiopians, of course, uh, first and foremost, to keep it from relapsing. But they w should be able to, and I hope will be able to, count on their friends in the continent and their friends in the region and in the international community who want to see them succeed. When I spoke to Prime Minister Abiy almost a year ago, I told him I didn't want to be an Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs with a broken Ethiopia and a broken Ethiopia-America relationship. And I think many people feel that way. 
So we all need to stay engaged and help them uh, pick up the pieces and move forward. You're right, it's not only a problem between Tigre and the federal government. As you know, the federal government has a lot of challenges with other regions and other ethnic communities. So there's going to be need to be a serious uh, revision and revival of Ethiopia's political system. And I, I know that their friends are ready to support them as they take on that challenge. And does the U.S. have a strategy for dealing with Eritrea's role in the conflict, um, specifically in terms of, you know, how to pressure Eritrea to honor the deals that were signed, even if, even if they weren't party to those deals? Well, regrettably, we have very little influence over Eritrea. We have, as you know, imposed significant sanctions against the government of Eritrea for its involvement in this crisis. We have encouraged the African Union, leaders on the continent individually, uh, the UN system, others who might have influence with Eritrea to press the government to withdraw. This is fundamentally a responsibility of the government of Ethiopia, which invited Eritrea into this conflict. So I would say it's a real challenge for everyone because um, Eritrea is so insulated. It's hard to find a way uh, to influence this dictator effectively. Um, Moving on to Sudan, of course, our our time is limited, so I could ask a lot more on Ethiopia, but I want to keep us moving. Um, so in Sudan, obviously, the you know the U.S. has been central there and and helping bring together the the military uh, leaders, de facto leaders of that country, and civilian leaders uh, to try to find a way out of the political impasse. Now we we start to see outlines of a deal, but we also see that the uh, you know the street, the protest movement, is still not very keen on such a deal. Um, if we can say something with such broad strokes, I'm just. It, I'm wondering how we move forward in Sudan, um, do you think, in a way that sort of doesn't also fracture this one very positive force, you know, in the country, if not the region, this this pro-democracy revolution? I've often struggled, you know, it seems sometimes possible to either strike a deal or to keep the anti-coup resistance unified, but but not both. So I'm I'm wondering, how do you think we can square that circle moving forward? Well, when I've met with members of the resistance committee, I have expressed, I think, an admiration that's shared by every observer for their commitment uh, to democracy and their resistance to military rule, which has been so inspirational for the Sudanese, I think, for everyone on the continent and globally, anyone anyone who looks at it. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. And we have tried to complement their leadership and sacrifice by, uh, again, mobilizing uh, the players in, uh, in Sudan to say to the military, you cannot have a relationship that you need with the rest of the world if you do not cooperate and enable and participate in the restoration of a civilian-led transitional government. So as you know, we cut off all international assistance to Sudan from the multilateral um, financial institutions. We suspended the, the debt relief that uh, had been uh, in train. Uh, most major partners suspended development assistance. And we, we tried to provide concrete tactical assistance uh, to help them resolve their differences and, and, and restore uh, the civilian-led transitional government. So when I talk uh, to the Shabab in the resistance committees, I say to them, this is not a sustainable position. It's a critical position. Uh, It has forced the military to realize that they must accept a civilian-led transitional government, contributed to uh, leadership actions by the military to create a framework for that to be possible. 
but they have to move forward now to find a way, find common ground on a political agreement, not consensus. Uh, I don't think it's possible, given the complexity of the Sudanese politics and communities, for there to be consensus, nor should there be consensus. It's very rare to think of any political system where there's consensus. You need to find common ground to be able to move forward. So I think they're very close. I have enormous admiration uh, for the Sudanese uh, who have negotiated the agreement that they're talking about right now. I do feel, however, that I'm not sure how much more time will, whether or not it would result in a better outcome, if, if you see what I mean. The challenge for Sudan now, because of this enormous economic pressure, which has been magnified um, by the consequences of the Russian in, invasion of Ukraine, which you know has been so disruptive all over Africa, including in Sudan, uh, the consequences for instability between the center and the periphery, the inattention to implementation of the Juba Peace Agreement. Uh, there are so many opportunity costs for Sudan for continuing to delay reaching agreement. Uh, so I recognize that that may sound more pragmatic uh, to someone who is inspirational, but the civilians have had an, a great opportunity to talk to one another. They should do more of that. But I, I feel that from my understanding, they really have identified the backbone, the elements, the structure of, of a core political agreement uh, that will allow them uh, to restore the government. And then, Ellen, that government will also be fragile, right, because it will have involved, as all p- politics um, does, uh, compromises. And so, again, the Sudanese will need to remain engaged and all their friends will need to remain engaged uh, to help them uh, consolidate that framework and develop it into the kind of full-fledged democracy that will really restore, in my view, Sudan to its proper place on the continent in terms of prosperity and stability and being a proponent of peace uh, and leadership. That's the kind of Sudan we want to see. That's a Sudan that can definitely exist given the enormous capability of the people there. And that's why we're so committed to helping them reach that outcome. And a quick follow-up, um, what do you say to Sudanese who are skeptical of, you know, the U.S. coordination with Gulf powers that they view very skeptically, you know, in, in trying to broker a way out of this political impasse? Again, the Gulf powers have influence uh, with key factions in Sudan. In my estimation, they have used that influence constructively. I think they have recognized uh, the uh, a fact that perhaps was more obvious to us initially uh, that there can be no stability in Sudan with a, a, a military-led government, right? That uh, the the people of Sudan have conclusively proven and demonstrated that that's not an outcome uh, that will work. So that they recognize that for Sudan to r- restore its stability, that a civilian-led government is necessary. And and I've seen them use their influence for that goal, and I hope that the Sudanese people will find that uh, helpful and constructive. I also think it's it's reasonable for the Sudanese people, given the history of uh, certain engagement by certain outside players, uh, to be skeptical and to be concerned. Uh, and and I, in many cases, I share those concerns. But uh, in recent months, I think we've seen uh, uh, the Gulf Partners to Sudan play a positive role in using their influence with key leaders in Sudan to encourage this uh, restoration of the civilian-led transitional government. 
you played a central role in the U.S. negotiations with Taliban that took place in Doha. You know, turning that lens to Somalia, I'm wondering, you know, will there ultimately need to be negotiations with al-Shabaab to end the war in Somalia, which is which is something crisis group wants major powers to, to consider? Um, and, and if so, h- how does U.S. strategy reflect that? Well, it's trite but true that there is no military solution to the conflict in Somalia. It's also important to note that the recently elected president has said that he is prepared to engage at the right moment in discussions with al-Shabaab. So we would support uh, the Somali lead on that effort. I I don't think they're at that point yet, but he has acknowledged that publicly, and and I think that's important. So I, I believe our policy would be Uh, guided to supporting their approach uh, to restoring uh, stability to their country. Our engagement, our strategy right now is to help them tackle the immediate threat of al-Shabaab and put them in a position to have an effective outcome. Hmm. Does the U.S. see a new key ally in the region and new Kenyan President William Ruto? Well, we are fortunate to have enjoyed a a strong and fruitful relationship with Kenya for many years. That election was very exciting for everybody, and most importantly, the Kenyans. President Ruto has been off to a strong start. I think it's exciting this week. You've seen the establishment of his Hustler Fund. And we have, of course, worked closely with Kenyans, not only in developing their economy and helping them with their security, but relying on them for their engagement in Ethiopia. And also you've seen uh, President Kenyatta's critical role uh, recently in the Eastern DRC, a role that President Ruto encouraged him to adopt. So I, I see our relationship with Kenya going from strength to strength. So finally, in terms of countries, I wanted to to turn to a, a country that I think has a permanent place in the minds of both of us, South Sudan. Um, you were ambassador there during an incredibly painful period um, of the country's civil war. The U.S. spends around a billion dollars annually on South Sudan, but I think many South Sudanese and others, you know, ask, uh, you know, what impact that support is is truly having in the lives of South Sudanese, which by by many metrics, sadly, just seem to keep getting worse and worse, at least in many parts of the country. I'm sure you've thought a lot about this question, but but generally, what's the path forward? Um, and I don't just mean, you know, in terms of South Sudan's leaders and what they sh- they should do, but but U.S. policy. Yeah, I, I'm glad you used the word painful. Uh, because that's certainly true for the people of South Sudan and for any friend of South Sudan. Pain at the missed opportunities, you know, that the people have been victims of, that their leaders have missed so many opportunities. I think pain at the literal suffering, uh, I think, for example, of the repeated horrific rape of women in South Sudan uh, that they encourage, the pain of hunger. The, the leadership has just shown no interest in solving South Sudan's problems and in leading the country forward. So uh, that has affected our engagement uh, with the government and our renewed focus on supporting the people. You mentioned that big billion dollar figure. When you break it down, it's basically going into two pots. One is to support the UN mission, uh, which does so much to help the people of South Sudan. And the other, the balance of, of that amount is uh, in humanitarian assistance. I have to tell you, Alan, it's one of those conflict situations where I think there's real scope to review the role of humanitarian assistance uh, in a country 
there's a, a, a real devil's choice of not wanting to cut support for people uh, genuinely in need, but fearing that that support may in some ways fuel or contribute to the status quo. And I don't think we in the international community have come up with a way uh, to deal with that devil's choice. I think devil's choice is a good term. Is is the U.S. currently reviewing that humanitarian assistance, that policy in a sort of broader sense towards South Sudan? Well, it's a question that I think we all consider and we discuss with our implementing partners. I'm not sure, Alan, realistically, given the global challenges with refugees and IDPs and the stress, uh, particularly in this region, for example, from drought. There's so many challenges to the humanitarian community right now. It's not really, in my judgment, in a space to be inventive or creative, but I think it's uh, an issue that merits further research and further innovation. And so uh, we'll be committed to looking at that issue, uh, but I don't see any easy or immediate solutions. Sure. Um, So just to zoom out quickly once more, we hear a lot on the continent from African officials and leaders. There's, There's a lot of I'd say resentment, a word I used earlier, but also anger and frustration at the continued use by the U.S. of of sanctions as a major tool of diplomacy. Um, Do you think the era of sanctions is, you know, should be ending or or should be should be lessening? Is that has the U.S. been too quick to the trigger, perhaps, on on using sanctions in the past? Or do you think it's still a very effective, legitimate uh, tool in the arsenal? I, that's such a broad question, Alan. Um, it's it's maybe easier for me uh, to consider it in a specific rather than the abstract. Um, I would say in the case of Sudan, it's a very complicated tool, right, given the history of uh, U.S. sanctions against the Bashir regime. And I would also tell you that in many ways, I personally feel uncomfortable with the economic pressure on Sudan. Uh, because of the impact it has on the average Sudanese citizen. But in that instance, I'm really guided by the desires and aspirations of the Sudanese people who told us over and over again they want us to support them uh, in their struggle uh, to restore uh, their form of government, you know, a civilian-led transitional government, uh, and they want our backing, and that's a tool uh, that we can use to reinforce their leadership and sacrifice. So in, in my j- judgment, however you define a sanction, a sanction is in the the loss of assistance, uh, the sanction in the instance of preventing multilateral assistance. Um, uh, again, we suspended the debt relief. Uh, th- those, those constitute enormously uh, significant uh, sanction, if you will, in terms of economic pressure. Uh, In other instances, we use sanctions to uh, focus on individuals who take disruptive action. When the Somalis were going through their election period, which was much delayed, as you know, uh, we announced that we would impose uh, visa sanctions against anyone who obstructed the the election. So we try and use the sanctions in a targeted way uh, to support democracy, to support the outcomes that the people want. So I understand that the principle of the use of sanctions can be um, disruptive or um, uncomfortable or objectionable to some, but we really strive to use that tool in a way that advances uh, the goals of Africans and U.S. policy goals in terms of democracy and stability. Thanks. I, I really appreciate you engaging that 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 question kind of straightforwardly in terms of the the economic impact it can have. Finally, 
this month, as we mentioned at the at the top, um, is the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit. You know, just close us out um, by telling us, you know, what you hope, what Washington hopes to achieve there, and and what should we be looking for. Well, we're really excited about it. Uh, everybody uh, from the president on down is thrilled to welcome African leaders, and as well, we've invited many members of uh, African civil society and the diaspora here in the United States, as well as uh, American businesses, representatives of the creative industry, uh, representatives of the tech industry. So it, it will be really fun uh, and I think really hectic. But really what we want to do is to go back to what I said at the beginning is elevate our conversation, talk about how we should reconfigure and um, expand our partnership to meet the challenges of our era. Thanks so much for coming on our podcast. It's great. Again, it's great to talk to you. And I appreciate what you do uh, to bring attention to these important issues uh, and to inform and teach all of us. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a fresh episode in the new year. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group and is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nobby. 